very much more a cultural expedition. You set out for this thing, exploring this very, very remote area. So we were in western Alaska, Wales, Alaska, which is the westernmost city in the U.S. It's, if you think back to Sarah Palin's famous line, I can see Russia from here. You actually physically can see Russia from there on a clear day. Um, You can see tomorrow from there, too. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 102, Sonia Baumstein, sea kayaking, ocean rowing, and stand-up paddleboarding. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today is part two of a two-part show with Sonia Baumstein. Sonia is an amazing guest who rode across the Atlantic. She paddled from Seattle to Juneau, Alaska. She biked from Mexico to Seattle. She has done a lot of amazing feats. She even attempted a crossing of the Pacific. And we ended the last episode with an account of her almost, just barely missing, getting run over by a large fishing vessel somewhere a little bit east of Japan. And... It was an amazing story, so I'm going to press rewind for about 60 seconds so you can hear the story in its entirety as we join this interview in progress. Enjoy! There happened to be one day that I woke up at 3.30 a.m. I was a day and a half out, and I had gotten maybe two hours of sleep, three hours of sleep. I was still really close to the shore. It's hard to break off um, of shore when it's a major... Uh, landmass because you've got local currents, local waves, local weather conditions that are different once you get 100 miles offshore on top of the boat traffic. So you're trying to break away from land in this boat that's completely self-powered and dependent on wind to blow you off land to an extent. Um, And you've got headwinds and crosswinds and weather happening that um, if you could just get a bit further, wouldn't be happening. Mm. So I happened to wake up at this time. My AIS wasn't sounding. That's the device that Um, tells me when ships are around me and also tells those ships that I am there. And I hear this sound. I'm rowing. And mind you, when you're rowing, you're not facing the direction that you're going toward. So my back is towards um, the actual way that I'm moving. And I'm hearing this. And I decide to stand up and look around. And now there's a 60-foot saner coming at me going like 25 knots, something pretty fast. And it's not not just going beside me it's heading directly towards me i of course your immediate reaction as a human being is to start jumping and screaming and signal them but then after that kind of ebbs after like 15 or 20 seconds and you're like obviously they're not going to hear me you've got basically three options which in rapid succession i evaluated one you jump from the boat because you want to get as far away and swim as far away as you can so you're not pounded by this vessel two so immediately i unclip um from my lifeline, which is something that holds me onto the boat in case I need to jump because I'm thinking that that's what's going to happen. And the boat's about a minute away at this point. They're not seeing me. I can reach in, grab my VHF radio, try to radio them, but I'm in Japan. Nobody speaks English at all. Oh. 
they don't I don't know the name of the boat. It's too close for me to go into my cabin and look at my my AIS, my GPS screen and see what the boat's name could be to radio them specifically. By the time I radio Japanese Coast Guard and try to make them understand what I'm saying, the boat is going to hit me. So immediately it's either jump from the boat, use a flare and then jump from the boat. So without thinking, which is one of my proudest moments in my life, because I I never thought I'd have the capacity to do this. Um, you never think you're going to be in this situation until it's there. Um, I had one backup flare that was stuck with a bungee on the inside of my cabin. Without looking, I grabbed the flare. I light it as fast as I can. Having not lit a flare off in maybe three years, um, it's just not something you usually practice. Sometimes you do, but um, there's writing on the flare that tells you how to use it, but I generally knew how to use the flares that were the brand I chose. I light it, hold it as high as I can in the air. It's just a red hand flare. And then the boat sees me, and it turns at the last possible second. (laughs) And when I say last possible second, I mean spray is coming off the boat onto me. And I don't think it's going to be able to miss me because as it's going by, it's trailing an equally, it's probably a 25-foot speed vessel that's used for seining right behind it. Oh, and no. it swerves in this massive path to get away from me. But it's the scariest moment in an ocean rowing boat I've ever had. And wow. you can't anticipate it. <laughs> so then how do you sleep after that? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> now, now you're not sleeping for days until you can set this radius on your AIS that's maybe five miles and you're past all the fishing because fishing happens usually within 50 miles of shore. So you've got to get 100 miles out to start to feel safe. Okay. It's pretty crazy. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's say that somebody says, well, I want to try ocean rowing, but I'm not going to do a crossing. I just want to maybe go out with my buddies and and do some distance or cross a large bay or go out to an island that's not too far. Is that a different sport or is it pretty similar? It's the same thing. It just requires less equipment. Um, And I think it's definitely a cool thing that's on the rise as far as using it in a closer capacity, there are people that buy ocean rowing boats and row from island to island and do little jumps. They're honestly great for fishing and things like that. It's just a different capacity, like what kind of thing do you want to accomplish? Do you want to be able to go and sit in a boat that's completely safe for the most part in any weather condition? You can anchor off in it because that's an ocean rowing boat. If you want to have a speed boat and go fish, you're kind of in a different scenario. So there are those opportunities and options. Unfortunately, the purchase of the vessel is high enough that you'd want to have, you'd really want to get use out of it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Well, describe what your boat looks like so people get a feel. So uh, I have a carbon boat. Um, You could either have a wood boat, a fiberglass boat, or a carbon boat. The first iterations of these ocean rowing boats in the 70s were wood because fiberglass wasn't being used a whole lot. And then fiberglass came and that kind of replaced it and they went from a wood core, which is the sandwich in between fiberglass, to a foam core to make it lighter, and it's just rigid foam. And then from there it went to a uh, carbon, is now the newest iteration of foam and carbon. So mine is a foam and carbon boat. It's 23 feet long. It has two small cabins on either end. Um, The one on the bow is the larger cabin that is kind of, that's the main place that you sleep. You do have the option of the aft cabin or the stern cabin that the rudder comes off of, but that's generally used for storage. 
So, and in the middle you have this rowing space, and it's a foot off the water. Um, it's exposed, and that's where you do your rowing. So, so you're in the salt spray a lot of the time. Yeah, and one thing you don't realize before being on an ocean is even if you're not getting covered with water because the waves can really smack you around, you're still covered with salt all the time because that's it's in the air. Yeah, and you're right on the surface. It's not like you're way up somewhere. Exactly. Um, so your skin constantly is covered with salt, which contrary to popular knowledge, and maybe this is just um, someone who grew up by an ocean, I was raised with my mother saying, you're sick, we're going to go to the ocean, that's going to heal you. The salt air is good for you. It causes so many skin problems once oh, you I can imagine. stay in it for weeks at a time. Yeah, we're, our skin is made to, to deal with fresh water. The salt can't be good for long periods. Exactly. So you're dealing with keeping your body safe at the same time as keeping your boat safe. Right. Um, so, but there's a lot involved in any sport. And I wish I could speak to other sports as as much as I could speak to ocean rowing. Um, I've gotten kind of interested in the last few weeks as I went through the the southwestern part of the U.S. with Zion and Bryce Canyon and um, the Grand Canyon, seeing all of these places in canyoneering. That's a really interesting thing that I'd learn more about. And that's kind of the cool thing about adventure sports. You don't have to just do one thing. You can do anything. It's active learning. Before I see kayak the inside passage, I'd never see kayak before. Before I paddleboarded the Bering Strait, I picked it up a couple of weeks before. You have these opportunities to do these great things, and it's just a vehicle, and you just have to learn how to drive the vehicle. So, um, well, Will you tell us a story about uh, paddleboarding the Bering Strait? What was that like? Uh, it was very different from any other experience I've had doing an expedition because it was very much more a cultural expedition. You set out for this thing, exploring this very, very remote area. So we were in western Alaska, um, Wales, Alaska, which is the westernmost city in the U.S. It's, if you think back to Sarah Palin's famous line, I can see Russia from here. You actually physically can see Russia from there on a clear day. Um, you can see tomorrow from there, too. You can see tomorrow. You As soon as you cross the strait, you're in a different um, time zone. So, but it's also a very short area. Um, it's 42 miles across at its closest. And, uh, as a paddle boarder, it's an interesting set of weather conditions in that the wind blows from the north and it blows from the south. It does not blow east to west really ever. So you've got a waiting game. Mm. And there are hundreds of other people that can do what I, I did up there but not as many that would be willing to play that waiting game. And that's a part of, um, I think, being a successful adventurer is that you have a lot of patience. So I ended up being in this small Inupiaq town of 80 native people for six weeks sleeping on someone's couch. Just Even waiting for I the right wind. Waiting for the right wind, waiting for the conditions to present themselves, and you learn so much um, so that was very different than me being in a group of three people um, rowing across an ocean. I knew those people. So this is – and the thing that strung every expedition together as far as a thematic or motif that if I wrote a book I would speak about is this idea of climate change and 
the effect that it's having on um, places you'd never expect and places that you don't see. And the strongest one was that Western Alaska where you're literally seeing villages falling into the ocean with how rapidly the ocean is rising. And um, a people, a group of people that maybe don't have a college education, some lacking high school education, and they're the first generation where the oldest generation is kind of losing contact with their native language and uh, sustainability. So we're talking about a freshly westernized culture for the most part in that there's generations alive that remember when there wasn't Western things available to them. And the main topic of conversation is climate change. Hmm. It's a it's a really weird thing where they can remember when the fish ran in this way and now the ice comes too fast or it comes too late for the fish to do the same thing. It's really wild. You know, there are people that live kind of where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, there's so much political discussion about global warming or climate change and, and people are bantering back and forth. But when you're living in a in a place where everything is changing, then I guess it uh, kind of gets your attention, huh? Yeah, and I think that people that do um, land-related stuff, now that there's this idea of disappearing snow for people that do winter sports, it's becoming more apparent. But for people that live um, next to waterways, next to oceans, this has been happening for a decade, and it just is getting more rapid every year, and it's a more obvious thing. Um, We have the luxury in the U.S. of Once a hurricane comes through, and this is me speaking as a Floridian, and it wipes out an entire beach and now all of a sudden the water is up to a seawall, oh, no problem. We're just going to uh, suck sand from the sandbar and dump it back on to create a beach again. And that's not the way it happens in 95% of the rest of the world. Right. So um, to see whole islands of people in the South Pacific going under the water and having to relocate uh, a people that have lived there for centuries. This is crazy. This is happening. And some people say it would naturally happen anyways, but at this rate, that's, there's just too many points to argue against it. It's hard to, it's hard to know. I read one author that I really appreciated and his point was whatever the cause we could spend all day arguing about the cause. We need to start arguing about how to take care of our people. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? That's a good point. When you have such a large percentage of the world's population that lives along the coasts and a lot of coasts that could be impacted um, by this stuff, then we need to start planning. We need to start planning about um, agricultural impacts and how we might have to relocate our agriculture, where we grow the food for the planet, things like that. So interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Last weird fact that most people don't realize is we now have – the opening of the North Passage through the Arctic. It is now possible for large freight vessels to go just straight across the Arctic, which is crazy. This is the first time in history this has been possible. And the freeing up of that area and what what is that going to mean? In the U.S. alone, we get 50% of our seafood from the Bering Sea. People don't realize that. That's pretty crazy, right? For... 350 million people that buy fish whenever they want to from the grocery store. It is coming from this ocean. And this ocean is not protected at all. Anything in the world can be dumped in it. Three miles offshore, it is not illegal to dump whatever you want for the Mm, most part. Interesting. Yeah, so um, the ocean is the largest 
area in the world that's completely unregulated and unprotected, really. So um, it's a powerful thing to be able to do these expeditions on these waterways and be around a lot of different people that have stakes in the game, everyone from Canadian fishers and um, Scripps Institute scientists to Inupiaq that live onshore, um, and to see the actual effects of these things happening to commerce and to livelihoods. So um, I think that's one of the most powerful things about doing these expeditions is because you're launching yourself into um, places where you may individually see the impact and you may also understand the impact from a third-person perspective. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, my daughter said the other day that before she went to Europe, of course, she wasn't so sure about geography and and it just kind of seemed like an idea but when she went to Europe, then it was real, and suddenly she loved geography and she wanted to study more about it because she encountered it firsthand. And I think that's what you're talking about. You know, we can all hear about it, read about it, but when you go out there and you're a part of it, you're with the people, you're touching the salt water, you know, you're seeing what's happening, then uh, it's real. Then it's no longer um, some sort of a scholastic argument. It, it's real. Absolutely, and the sad thing is is the oceans register change much longer before land does. So now that there's the lack of snow, all of these things happening on land, people are starting to pay attention, but it's still not something, it's still a seasonal thing for them. Sure. Um, yeah, so, and it's small things in your everyday life, buying less plastic, things like, but. Huh, interesting. For 20 years, Bent Gate Mountaineering has been outfitting climbers, skiers, backpackers, and outdoor enthusiasts with the gear they need. Whether climbing an 8,000-meter peak or buying your first backcountry ski setup, Bent Gate is here to help. Bent Gate is continuing to offer free BC 101 sessions this winter, teaching backcountry ski boot and binding setup, avi safety and beacon practice, clothing systems, and tips and tricks to make your days more enjoyable. If you don't own the gear, Bent Gate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment. Bent Gate also has free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a chance for hands-on experience. Be sure to check bentgate.com for our full product selection as well as updates on all these events. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. Well, let's shift gears a little bit here. Please tell us about any projects that you might have in the works. What's next? What's the next big adventure? Um, so I'm going to be doing a solo cross kind of get to get all these systems that I have in play um, that I spoke about before. So there's the obvious on-boat systems, and then there's the system of 
being able to tell this story actively from my boat and engage people in this crossing uh, that I didn't get a great chance to do on the Pacific. So I'm going to do a short little cross of the Gulf of Mexico, which is maybe two to three weeks, depending. And I'm kind of planning that now. And um, there may be a documentary that's kind of involved with the progress of that and showing the background and not just the crossing, which there's, of course, always a lot of interest in the expedition itself. But something that a lot of people don't get to see is that planning period and what goes into it. And there's a lot. It's multifaceted. So I'm excited to um, be a part of that project. So a documentary about crossing the Gulf of Mexico from where to where? Florida to the Yucatan or what are we talking about? I'm probably going to do Florida to Mexico and a lot of that has to, or I'm sorry, Florida to the tip of Texas. A lot of that has to do with the, so one logistical, it's probably like 15% of your logistics when planning one of these things is the shipping of your boat and shipping from the Yucatan or Mexico and not having things taken from your vessel um, are very difficult. So it's a lot easier to kind of stay south and get the same distance in. Um, but the thing you have to take into consideration is there are a lot of adverse currents in the Gulf of Mexico. You've got the Atlantic coming in. You've got the Gulf Stream. You've got warm water from the Caribbean. And all of those kind of meet in the Gulf of Mexico. So planning a route that doesn't go completely in the opposite direction of every current, um, but then also takes advantage of whatever trade winds. So it's picking a month. It's looking at pilot charts that kind of tell you what the wind and weather looks like over a period of a decade um, to figure that out and avoiding, like I said before, globalization. So in the Gulf of Mexico, there are hundreds of oil rigs and they aren't charted really anywhere that a civilian can access. So in doing it solo, it becomes difficult because you have to be aware of these things that don't have AIS. <laughs> wow. So how maneuverable is your boat? I mean, how hard would it be to, to make a quick change of direction and, and get some speed on? The speed is the real problem. And um, that is a mixed bag. It really depends on weather and how much time you have to make a decision because you're going to go one way. Hopefully you can direct around it, but these big rigs kind of have their own little systems of currents and eddies and waves around them too. So I don't know. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned earlier before we started recording that your boat itself kind of becomes an ecosystem. I thought that was fascinating. I'll bet our listeners would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, we were kind of talking about um, issues that happen and things that people think about. And one of them that I get asked about a lot is, do you see sharks? Do whales want to bump your boat? And um, the answer is yes. And that's because you are creating a small ecosystem. And I think the same goes for other sports in where you camp. So this idea of um, leave no trace and taking care of the space so that animals return. When you're there, you're creating an environment that now animals are staying away from. The opposite kind of goes for ocean rowing in that the things that smaller animals need are food to survive. So you're going slow enough that vegetation starts to grow on the bottom of your boat. Um, you do have to get out and scrape it from time to time if you're doing a longer expedition because it slows you down by a half a knot one knot, and that's a lot of distance in a longer period of time. 
So you have now you have food, a food source underneath your boat, and you're going slow enough and creating shade, shadow, which is a place for smaller fish to hide. But smaller fish attract larger fish, and those larger fish will be hunting the fish below your boat. The other thing is, is you're just an interesting object, and higher functioning animals in the ocean, lower functioning animals want to see what this thing is that's kind of just shifting, because normally it's just logs. Um, debris that would create these systems, but you're kind of moving a little bit too fast for that. So boats have been in situations where whales have surfaced underneath them or sharks have nudged them. Orcas, if you're in that um, area for there to be pods of orca, are very interested in small vessels. So Wow. So you're kind of a, a, a natural magnet for all these things. Absolutely. Um, and the thing that maybe not a lot of people realize, especially people that haven't been out um, offshore in an ocean, is the biosphere around you is is microscopic too. So you have um, bioillumination that happens at night from plankton, from algae that collects during the day. And when you disturb the water, it looks like stars have kind of been dusted along um, deep into the water. And depending on year, that algae can uh, form clouds of color too. So on the Atlantic, it kind of took that um, star-like look when we would have a very clear and darker night without a lot of moonlight. And on the Pacific, it was green clouds, so schools of fish um, being chased, just clouded green underneath the boat. It was It's really interesting to mm. be in those situations. You know, I got to see that bioluminescence doing some scuba diving down in the Caribbean and uh, did a night dive. And it was it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was kind of fun because you just wave your hand and sparks would fly off of it. Or, you know, when someone was swimming in front of you, you'd see all the illumination coming off their flippers. It was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it's unreal. It's really beautiful. And you're kind of, I mean, you get to watch life that you might not otherwise be able to see at night, which is really cool. It's, the ocean's a very active place. It's amazing, too, to think that the vast majority of our planet is ocean and how little most of us know about it because we're land-based people, right, for the most part. And uh, for you to be able to connect with the oceans on that on that personal level is an experience a lot of people don't have. So that's cool. It's neat that you've been there and you've seen it and you've done it. Yeah, and I have like a very base experience with it compared to, I mean, scientists that are spending their lives exploring um, and mapping the bottom of our ocean, only 5% of the ocean floor has been mapped at this point. So it is, a lot of people talk about space travel and moving to Mars, but we have our own um, undiscovered territories that really should be given more attention. Yeah, right here. Think about how much we could learn about the whole biosphere, the whole ecosystem of the planet, if we better understood the water, the oceans, the currents, even the topography. Yeah, that's that's neat. A lot to experience, a lot to discover. So listeners, you might be the next great discoverer, but maybe it's going to be several leagues under the sea. Yeah, who knows? And discovery isn't just when it hasn't been found by anybody else. Discovery is also you experiencing new things. So um, don't let uh, don't let your fear of maybe somebody having done it before be something that inhibits you from experiencing it for the first time yourself. Sure. Well, here's a new question for you. Assume for a minute that you have a rich uncle that decides that he's going to fund a month-long adventure, all expenses paid, anything you want to do, 
What is it? So it's interesting that you asked me that. I love that question because um, constantly expanding, constantly finding new things, um, new interests. What I really want to be able to do better is translate these things that I see so that other people can feel like they have a stake in these areas. Um, it's really important to have that connection. So I'd really like to become a better videographer, a better photographer, um, to be able to tell these stories more vividly that we've been talking about. Um, and also in a way that still promotes discovery. So lately I've been reading up on Canadian rivers and something like 40% of them are still, uh, unnamed and, maybe unnavigated depending on the area that they're in. So there still presents opportunity to have a whole new experience and chart an area literally um, that hasn't been charted before. Wow. I did not know that. That is really cool. There is so much land area that is so um, far from population in Canada and what a vast natural resource that is. It would be really cool to be able to plug into that. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. It's Tim Emmett. I'm a professional climber and wingsuit pilot. I really enjoy public speaking, and I've spoken at schools, events, and businesses all over the world. I believe that you can change the way you feel by changing what you think about and using lessons learned from a world in extreme sports. If you're looking for someone lively to brighten up your event, and maybe expand your concept of possibility, send me an email to tim at timemmet.com. That's T-I-M at T-I-M-E-M-M-E-T-T dot C-O-M. Thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like finding that. So whenever I find a void of information on something, I'm immediately charged by it. And that's kind of how the Bering Strait came to fruition. There was almost no knowledge of crossings. There was a bit that's been done. Obviously, natives have been crossing from Russia over on national uh, the natural land bridges that have been created um, each winter, but also in kayaks um, for centuries. But there wasn't much information about it. And now that I have this interesting fact that there's all of this undiscovered, unexplored um, territory, 
And maybe it has been explored, it just hasn't been mapped. It immediately makes me want to go there, and now I've just got to find my project. <laughs> That's great. Well, before we go, tell us a little bit more about your ocean rowing boat business. You mentioned that you built your boat and that you now build boats for others. What's that about? Yeah, Spindrift Rowing is the name of our business, and um, it was started with the creation of my vessel, and it just turns out that the only builders of ocean rowing boats are in the U.K., so it's something that not a lot of Americans have access to. It's too far away to train or get your boat from. And I've been hearing it for years. I wish there was a builder in um, North America. So we are the very first builder. And with that and with these awesome expeditions that I have um, the opportunity, opportunity to do with support of the variety of sponsors that I have, um, we've also had calls for a lot of other unique things like expedition paddle boards and kayaks built in different ways. And that's really exciting to be kind of this, although we're starting as an ocean rowing business, being at the crux of ocean expedition crafts. And um, I think it's not going to stop with ocean rowing boats, although we are on our third build now. Um, I think we're going to continue into other areas. So, And so say the name of it again, Spin Thrift. Is that right? Spin Drift. Spin so, Drift. Sorry. Yeah. Spin drift is something that maybe not a lot of people know about, but it's a way to identify how fast the wind is blowing on the ocean. Spin drift is when the wind gets above 15, 20 knots and it's wavy, you start seeing clouds of water kind of blown off the top of waves. And that is called spin drift. Ah, very cool. I love it. Yes. Yeah, so we're on Facebook. We have a website if you want to check out our boats. And I'd be happy if anybody hears this and becomes interested in doing an expedition anywhere, specifically an ocean rowing expedition. Um, send us an email. Give us a call. Connect with us because um, I call every single person that shows that interest to talk to them because it's a whole new world and there's so much to learn. Oh, neat. So... What is the URL for the website? It is www.spindriftrowing.com. It's S as in Sonia, my first name, P-I-N-D-R-I-F-T, rowing. Spindriftrowing.com. We'll put that in the show notes so everyone can find it there. And yeah, that's neat. So people can contact you if they would like more information about the sport. You're all about that. Yeah, absolutely. There's introductory races you can join there's a race that goes from california to hawaii for all americans there's also a race across the atlantic um, that goes from the canary islands to antigua i think it is going to this year and there's actually 37 boats entered in this year's race so it is a burgeoning sport for sure oh, that's really cool so close us out here with a funny story that has to do with ocean crossing a funny story to do with ocean crossing. I've got a good one. Um, it also goes into that category of unbelievable things. Um, <laughs> so while out there, you're kind of hyper aware of what's going on around you. And during my Atlantic cross that I had four people on board, myself and three men, my partner Oliver and I would often be looking. Um, and one night there was this extreme red light in the distance and it was kind of a foggy night, overcast. And I said, um, oh, my God, we need to turn on the AIS. We had turned off uh, we turn off equipment to save energy. Everything is an energy draw if you haven't had sunlight. And we didn't have a whole lot of sunlight for the first three weeks, like clear sunlight for our solar panels, um, which drive all of our systems. And um, 
he's like, are you serious? And I'm like, uh, I think we have to wake up the guys and turn on the VHF and radio them. And it turned out to be the moon. It was a harvest moon over the ocean. <laughs> so it's more of a silly story, but I've been hearing about it for the last three and a half years. So it'll never go away. <laughs> I'm sure I have a pilot friend who dodged a star once. <laughs> uh, yeah, see, it happens. It and- does happen. Yeah, it was every night. It was like, um, the moon looks like it's coming up. Should we turn the radio on to um, let them know where we're at? (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Well, hey, Sonia, it's been a delight to hear about your experiences and your perspective about the planet that's grown out of your experiences. I think that that's one of the reasons why adventure sports are so beneficial is that people gain just a whole new awareness and perspective on life, on the planet. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to talk to someone who can share a little bit of that with us. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And we as individuals go places that scientists don't necessarily have the opportunity to go. Um, so there's tons of citizen science projects that are out there um, to participate in. I know um, Adventures for Science is one organization that if you go out, even if you're doing a day sale, they can probably connect you with a project um, to collect data for And the more data we have, the more knowledge we have about our constantly changing um, biosphere. I love it. Adventures for Science. Yeah. So if a person Googles Adventures for Science, they can find a way to to invest a little bit of their time in furthering science while they're out having an adventure and having a good time. Yeah, I think it's actually um, ASC, Adventures for Science and Conservation. Um, I do projects too, smaller projects. Everything I do has uh, I collect data for, but they are a good clearinghouse for anything that you may be doing, even if biking. Um, we did a roadkill study for them once. so <laughs> That's great. Right on. Well, Sonia, thank you again very much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely, and um, keep exploring. Yeah, you bet. And for all of our listeners out there, as always, get out there and have some fun. Hey, come be a guest on our show. All you need to do is go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click the Contact Us button.